Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. It's been a relatively quiet week for the markets, but a bumper week for investment trust results and news announcements. More than 25 trusts have published results or trading updates in the last five days. And that excludes three large and popular trusts, Worldwide Healthcare, TR Property and Aberdeen New India, which I inexcusably forgot to mention in last week's roundup, even though I've owned and follow all three closely. Fortunately, we publish links to all the latest announcements in our weekly summary of the news in the sector, which you can find as a subscriber to our bonus offering, The Moneymakers Circle, along with our latest in-depth trust profile, which this week features International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at BlackRock Greater Europe, ticker BRGE. It may be worth emphasizing that our profiles, unlike a lot of research you may find elsewhere, are written from an entirely independent perspective, free of commercial sponsorship or involvement. I hope you'll forgive me also if I highlight the fact that the first hardback copies of this year's annual investment trust handbook, the seventh year that we've been producing this publication, are due to be delivered next week and available for sale the following week. And you can also download the free PDF version from the Moneymakers website or from the publisher's website. That's harriman-house.com. This year's edition runs to a record 340 pages and has the usual mix of review articles of the year just gone. More articles about current issues and the outlook from here, written by our now well-established family of expert contributors. Q&As with a number of fund managers and 100-plus pages of data and analysis. The editorial content was completed towards the end of October, but you can also read the reasons why back then I thought we were approaching the end of the great derating that has been the hallmark of the sector since early in 2022. After two years of urging caution on readers, it's pleasant to be able to strike a much more optimistic note in this year's edition of the handbook, even if there are a number of issues that the sector still needs to address. There are too many trust results I've said to cover in detail this week, so in today's podcast I will be discussing only the most interesting corporate announcements in conversation with Andrew McHattie, the knowledgeable and experienced editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, who's been following the sector almost as long as I have. There's been no shortage of corporate news either, with two more proposed mergers or amalgamations, one involving two China-focused trusts, Fidelity China Special Situations and Aberdeen China, and the other involving two equity income trusts, one global, one UK-centred, both managed by Troy Asset Management. That's SDS Global Income and Growth, ticker SDS, and Troy Income and Growth, ticker TIGT. In addition, we discuss, among other things, the latest corporate news and updates from Digital Nine Infrastructure, Asian Energy Impact, Chrysalis, Aberdeen European Logistics Income, JLEN Environmental Assets, Keystone Positive Change, and Home REIT. After that, I take a look at the UK equity markets in conversation with Charles Luke, long-serving manager of the Murray Income Trust, ticker MUT, which last month celebrated its 100th anniversary as a listed vehicle. Congratulations to them. The market, as I said, had a relatively quiet week with most leading equity markets edging a little higher. The S&P 500 up around three quarters of 1% and the FTSE All Share up a tad over 0.4%. 
Asian markets, with the exception of the still booming Indian market, were, however, down a little. So too was the Investment Trust Index, which was down by 0.8%, as discounts widened a fraction to just under 16%. November has, however, been a good month for the sector, with more than 100 trusts up by more than 5%, and some particularly notable signs of life from smaller company and early-stage growth capital trusts, a sign that risk assets are beginning to attract more attention. Shihalian, the Bailey Gifford Growth Capital Trust, tops the list with a 55% gain since the start of November, followed by the two largest battery storage trusts, up between 25% and 30%. In the gilts market, yields continue to suffer a little, with every issue showing a gain in price, and yields were also significantly down in the US Treasury market. Around a quarter of gilts in issue have now produced a total return of more than 5% over the past month. A gold and copper, meanwhile, both moved higher. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge the passing of Charlie Munger, the well-known investor who worked alongside his great friend Warren Buffett for something like 70 years, ever since they first met back in Omaha, Nebraska, where they both lived and were brought up. Charlie Munger was a significant investor in his own right, and according to Warren Buffett himself, contributed more to the success of Berkshire Hathaway than anyone else, including perhaps Buffett himself. So sad to see him die aged 99, didn't quite make it to 100. But I would commend anyone who's interested in the philosophy and practice of investment to read some of the uh, speeches and articles that uh, Charlie Munger wrote over the years. There's a splendid book called Poor Charlie's Almanac, which, uh, while quite expensive, is well worth the investment. And I strongly commend that to you. Charlie Munger always talked a lot of sense, even though his language was sometimes robustly direct. None the worse for that. So it seems that I chose a good week to catch up with Andrew McHattie, who is the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter for one of our regular discussions of all the most recent announcements coming out of the sector. And boy, it has been a very busy week for announcements, and it's also been a very interesting period for the Investment Trust universe performing quite strongly this month and perhaps this is the turning point after the long period of derating. Andrew, I don't know where to start. We can start by talking briefly about the markets, I think, and then we can move on to talk about some of the announcements we've heard this week. been quite a few, many of them on the consolidation theme. But give us your take on uh, what's been happening in the sector and the markets overall as we sit here at the end of November. Yes, well, we have seen a marked pickup, actually. And November was a very good month indeed for investment companies after three months of straight decline. And the investment companies index was up about 6.8%. So a substantial recovery, but clearly a much needed one. So is there something, a relief here? And I think what we've seen is actually a broad reaction to the improved macroeconomic tone that was really set by the Bank of England holding interest rates for the second month in a row. And that did, I think, encourage some of the very depressed sectors that are interest rate sensitive to bounce a little. So we're grateful for that. Indeed, we are. At the same time, as I said, we've seen a lot of announcements coming out from investment trusts about actions they're taking to address the discount issue at the same time. And uh, we've seen, obviously, the arrival of a number of activist trusts as well. But you think so far, basically, what we've seen has been primarily driven by the change in interest rate expectations. Is that fair, would you think? If I'm ranking factors by importance, that one is very much at the top. 
And I think the evidence to suggest that comes from the type of trusts that have been moving because we've seen the interest rate sensitive trusts move up most sharply in, for example, growth capital, renewable energy and real estate. So I think the macro picture is the most important. But of course, there are these other factors as well. And you've mentioned the vast amount of corporate activity that has me breaking out into a sweat in spite of the cold weather. And that's helped in certain cases. And then as well, I think there's a third factor, which is that the cost disclosure issue that's been hanging over the industry for quite some time is perhaps edging towards some degree of improvement. But I'm couching that in very cautious terms because the FCA has kicked the ball back to the government by saying, well, it's a matter of UK law, but they will be able to at least ameliorate the worst effects of that in the near term. So that might also encourage buyers to come in. Yes, and I think that's uh, the key to it, isn't it? One perhaps would not want to risk one's uh, personal fortune on expecting the FCA to move quickly on this, even when they've been given a green light by the government. But we'll see. It's certainly on the agenda. got to mention the autumn statement, and that's probably positive, and the government has followed up with this statutory instrument and so on. So there is a movement there, you're right, but it probably does need quite a lot of factors combining before we see a significant revival in demand for investment trusts, I would suggest. Would you agree with that? I mean, it takes time for these various factors to register with uh, potential investors who have abandoned the sector, if you like, and it takes time then for them to decide they want to put some money back in again at a time when the equity markets generally are doing a little bit better. We do have a long way to travel, you're right. And the average discount is still languishing at about 15.5%, which is off its worst levels, but it's still not good. And I think you're right, there are two real factors here. The first thing is that, of course, we've been talking about these wide discounts for quite some time now, and a reaction has been on the way, but it takes time. And actually, just as the FCA doesn't do very much instantly at all, It's quite difficult for the industry to react instantly as well, because in the case of corporate activity, it takes time to have boardroom discussions, to reach a deal, to engage your advisors. So I think now the news announcements that are coming out are the result of the work that's been taking place over the past few months. So that's one level of this. I think the other important thing is that it takes perhaps even longer for sentiment to turn because there's been such an avalanche of bad news about the sector and so many articles talking about the big discounts, so many pieces saying that investment trusts are unloved, that it takes time to persuade people that that has really changed. Uh, There are many examples of us crying wolf and thinking perhaps things are getting better. And I think investors really need to be convinced that's the case before they'll jump back in with both feet. And of course, there's a sort of technical factor as well at work here, which is about liquidity. And one of the things we discussed last week on the podcast with Emma Bird, among others, was the fact that if you look at some of these yield-sensitive investment trusts, it is the most liquid ones, the largest, most liquid ones, which suffered disproportionately, you could argue, which are beginning to see some uh, revival. And that's because there just isn't enough volume yet to drive share prices across the board. You're going to start at the top and may then work down to smaller issues. Would you agree with that? Well, I think you can argue that either way, actually, because we have seen some of the big trusts like Hickel Infrastructure bouncing very nicely, actually, in this latest rally. But actually, we don't necessarily need very much volume to drive some of the less liquid names as well. So we've also seen some of the smaller ones shift as well. So 
I think actually there's room for all trusts across the board to do much, much better if some money returns. And it doesn't necessarily need to be that much, really, to get prices shifting again. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things that the boards of investment trusts have been doing. As you say, it does take several months for things that are now being announced to come to fruition. So it seems clear that a large number of trusts have taken notice of what's happened and are trying to take remedial steps where they can. Let's just run down through some of them, shall we? Let's start off with another merger, this one between SDS Global Income and Growth, ticker SDS, and Troy Income and Growth, ticker TIGT. These are another example of a merger, which is much easier to pull off if you have the same fund management company involved in them, both of them. And it's Troy who are the manager of both these trusts. So uh, tell us what you think about this one. Uh, is this a surprise to you? Not especially, no, because actually Troy Income and Growth had already flagged that it was uh, seeking a combination. And actually, this was the obvious combination. And uh, it makes quite a lot of sense because although we're seeing this uh, UK trust now becoming a global trust, so it is somewhat different, actually there's quite a lot of overlap between the two because STS had already thought that the UK was a cheap market and therefore actually quite an attractive place for quite a lot of its global portfolio. So it had a third of its portfolio there, meaning that actually... These two trusts have 15 stocks in common under the same management, of course, and that half of TIGT's portfolio is already represented. So this looks like a relatively painless merger and should be quite easy to pull off, I'd imagine. Yes, and it was three years ago, I think roughly three years ago, that Troy took over the mandate for SDS Global Income and Growth. But I guess the question will be for the shareholders in Troy Income and Growth, which, as you say, is, is going to be merged into this Global Equity Income Trust. Do you think some of them will want to uh, get some more cash out of this than they're being offered at the moment? Well, in this case, there is a cash exit available, so they can they can vote with their feet. And uh, it may be that they'll choose to continue with full-on UK exposure, or they may just feel happy, actually, with this merger. Because of the commonality, it's not a step change away from where they currently are. But it's very important to consider this cash exit, I think. And in many cases, at the time when there are so many opportunities about and so little cash in our pockets, because we don't want to sell anything, actually having some cash available is maybe not a bad thing. Yes, I should have made that clear. There's a 100% potential cash option. So all the shareholders in theory could take cash at a 2% discount to NAV. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how many actually do that, I think, because uh, obviously as a condition of all this, uh, Troy are meeting some of the costs and the fee structure is being slightly modified. So it will cost them something. So they'll be hoping that they get some money come across, at least, I would imagine. Well, they will. And I dare say they've talked to quite a number of the major shareholders and probably received indications of acceptance. So, as you say, it'll be interesting to see what percentage of the uh, acceptances are for cash and how many would like to move into the rollover. But I would say it's going to be split somewhere and that in the end, Troy will be reasonably happy with the outcome. I'm just taking a quick look at the yields. I think both these trusts yield something around the same amount something around 3%, I think, slightly higher in the uh, Troy Income and Growth Trust. But there's not like there's a, a major difference there. So that's obviously got to be approved by both sets of shareholders. Let's move on and talk about another one now. This is slightly different. This is a deal involving Fidelity China Special Situations, ticker FCSS. It was, I think, the first of the larger China trusts to uh, be brought into existence when Antti Bolton was at the helm. 
And that's proposed a combination with Aberdeen China Investment Company, ticker ACIC. This one is an interesting one as well. What were your initial thoughts on this particular proposed amalgamation? Aberdeen's been actually very proactive in getting rid of some of its smaller management contracts. In this case, it's around £210 million of net assets. And the proposal is to merge with the Fidelity China Fund, which is much, much bigger at about £1.1 billion. So that makes sense for a start if we're talking about rationalisation of the sector. And actually, the Aberdeen Trust had a few specific issues. One of those was that it had three very large shareholders, and this really limited the liquidity in its shares. So it's hoping, I think, to deal with that issue. It's also had a much wider discount than average. It's been a very persistent discount, averaging 14.7% over the last 12 months. So I think it's reasonable for Aberdeen China to to seek some kind of recess and uh, an improvement there. One important factor here is that the cash exit offered is for a maximum of 33% of the shares, again at a 2% discount to the formula asset value. So you can't get a full cash exit. In theory, you can't anyway. I mean, I think if you really want to take the cash, you can always opt for the maximum, and then you might get more than 33% as long as other shareholders are not taking up that cash. So that's always worth a try. But if you do swap over into Fidelity Chinese, then you're getting into a trust on about a 10.5% discount. And perhaps because of the cash exit, Aberdeen China did see about a 10% bounce in its share price on the news. So it was welcomed. And I think it does make sense in the broader scheme of the rationalisation of the sector. Yes, it's probably worth saying that these are where sometimes negotiations run into difficulty, where you're trying to assess the point at which the shareholders who want to sell are satisfied and the uh, amount of assets that the larger surviving trust wants to take on. There is a sort of potential conflict there. You're trying to find a balance. The danger being that if you get it wrong, there may still be an overhang of shares people who want to sell, uh, even in the combined vehicle. And that may depress the price for a while after the deal goes through, assuming it does go through, which I'm sure it will. I mean, I guess the other factor here is that Fidelity China's special situation has not been performing that well itself, has it? It's had a quite a tough period. The Chinese market's been a difficult place to make money in the last few years. The great bounce back that many people were expecting when they came out of COVID lockdown hasn't really happened. But I guess it's got a long track record. How would you rate it amongst the universe of, of China trusts that we have? All four of the China-specific trusts have had a pretty difficult year, actually. And on average, they're down, I think, by about 8% over the last 12 months. But actually, over the longer term, Fidelity China does stand out as the best of the bunch. And actually, its record over five years is considerably better. And so my feeling is that actually, on all fronts, this is a pretty good deal for the Aberdeen China shareholders and I imagine there'll be a pretty good take-up. So that's one we're going to find out about before too long. Let's move on and talk about another trust which has been in the news this week. And this one is not such a happy story. This is a trust that's now called Asian Energy Impact, ticker AEIT. used to be known as Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact Trust until the managers were effectively given their cards. What's the news here? Obviously, it's being managed on an interim basis at the moment by Octopus Energy. But uh, what have we heard this week about this situation? 
So we had an update here on this. And, and as you rightly say, Jonathan, this is a sorry tale, this one, actually, because the shares have been suspended since the 24th of April. And I really don't like to see that because it's one of the virtues, actually, of the closed end sector, that even during tough times, you can sell if you want to. And so actually having the market effectively closed is bad news for everybody. And the news that we had this week is partly about that because it was an update from the board really informing shareholders what's been happening. So what they said was that they are hoping to catch up with the asset valuations and all of the outstanding reports by the end of this year, so by the end of 2023, and they would hope to resume trading shortly thereafter. So I think that's very welcome news because even if the price is really quite unattractive and hammered by all of the bad news that's come out since April, actually it's still just good to have a two-way market. The other thing is that the board said that as a technicality, because of the shareholder vote against continuation in August, they are obliged to present a winding up proposal to shareholders but they are advising shareholders to vote against this because that's not what they would like to do. They'd like to continue to conclude their strategic review, which they said they'll do by the end of the first quarter of 2024. And without knowing too much about the specific detail of the trust and exactly what Octopus Energy have found once they've taken over, I would imagine most shareholders would be quite happy for that strategic review to be completed. Right. And so that obviously implies that it could go on a two ways. The trust could continue in some format, uh, presumably with Octopus Energy at the helm, or it could then go back into a wind up if that's what seems to be the best thing once we have more information. And no doubt, presumably, once uh, we see where the share price sits, <laughs> when the shares come back from suspension. I perhaps wish to remind listeners that the problem here has been all about a, a very large solar project in India. It appears from the early announcements, as I recall them, you'll remind me if I'm wrong about this, Andrew, that actually it's not economic to go ahead, but actually it could cost them even more if they don't go ahead. So it's a kind of heads you lose and tails you lose as well. It's not a particularly attractive situation. So they have to come up with something good if they do want to go forward, presumably. The trust is in a hole. And, and you're right, it does all hinge on this Indian asset. And you're right, they effectively have decided that it was bad news going ahead with it, but even worse news not going ahead with it because of all of the contingent liabilities. So they probably will proceed with it, even though it's going to be loss making. But essentially, shareholders need a bit more information here before they can really judge anything. And largely, shareholders have been kept in the dark for too long here. And that's why I think we really need the outcome of the review and also for the shares to begin trading so we can get a bit of price discovery and, and see where we stand. And it's only then that shareholders can make some kind of informed judgment about uh, what to do next. I mean, while we're on the subject, I guess we do have to mention briefly, but we'll keep it brief because it's not a particularly agreeable way to spend the time of the podcast. There has been a further short announcement from Home REIT as well, the other investment trust whose shares have been suspended this time since the start of the year, back in January, as I recall. This trust has uh, said it's going to be giving uh, regular monthly updates about what's happening with it. Uh, what have we heard about that one this week? Slightly analogous situation, this one. Again, yes, as you say, Jonathan, shares suspended for a very long time. And we have a new manager here with AEW, seemingly hard at work, actually, digging around, trying to sort out as many problems as they can. And there's been a great deal of firefighting needed 
The latest news is that they have secured a lease surrender on 38 properties that had previously been uh, leased to Eden Safe, a company that actually hasn't paid them any rent since October 2022. So by getting those leases back, AEW can now get to work and try and start generating some income for the trust. It's a relatively small proportion of the assets, so not terribly important overall. But nevertheless, I think an indication that even though the shares haven't come back from suspension and probably won't until the early part of next year, there's quite a lot of work going on in the background. And fingers crossed, we have to say progress is being made. There's also some progress, though not one perhaps that every shareholder would welcome. If we go and talk about DGI 9 infrastructure, the Digital Infrastructure Trust, uh, which has also been in the news uh, quite a lot this year. They have a problem with their largest investment, which they're trying to resolve. What have we heard from them this week, Andrew? Are you a shout of this one? Uh, yes, I am. And I've just topped up, actually. So I have a positive story to tell you. <laughs> but I think the phrase that springs to mind here is be careful what you wish for, because Digital 9 infrastructure was essentially short of cash. And so there was a lot of publicity about this and many shareholders said, well, look, you just need to sell some assets. So the trust has gone ahead and done that. They sold their biggest asset, probably the most valuable and the one considered the best quality called Vern Global. And that news came out this week. And of course, other things being equal, you would think that was great news. It was exactly what everyone had been anticipating the only thorn in the side of the trust, the problem here, was that the price they've obtained was considerably below what the market had been hoping for. So it came in at £456 million, under estimates of about £500 million. Now, there's a story behind this and some elements that I think need a bit more explanation the first thing is that I, I'm not sure it was really widely known in the market, or at least not widely understood, that Vern Global is based on a single 40-acre site. It's a data centre, and it's in Iceland, and it's in the unfortunate part of Iceland, only 20 kilometres away from the town of Grindavik, which has been, of course, sealed off because of the seismic activity and the collection of magma under the ground there. So there was some risk, actually, to Vern Global. Now, the company has said it's uh, not under threat and it's far enough away. But I was concerned myself that actually any potential buyers here might say, well, we need to wait to see what happens with this potential eruption in Iceland. So on that basis, I think it's reasonable to express some degree of relief that a deal's been struck at all, actually. But the deal does have a deferred element to it, and this is important. So it's 456 million in total, but actually 107 million of that is deferred and won't be payable until 2027 at the earliest. And it's contingent on various things, including no adverse effects from geological factors, but also on profit targets being met. Now, the fact that this cash is being delayed for so long means that I think any hopes that this trust would very cleanly be able to wind up its operations and hand back more cash to shareholders has probably been scuppered. And I think that's part of the reason for the really quite strongly negative reaction this week. But the good news is that actually even without that deferred receipt, 
Uh, if you just assume that doesn't happen and that the profit targets are not met and the trust receives nothing else beyond the initial payment this year, the stockbroker's numis has calculated that the NAV is still 83.9 pence, which is massively above the current share price of about 39. And if you include that deferred consideration, that goes up to about 96. So there's quite a lot of scope here. There's quite a lot of margin for error. And I have noted that um, in addition to myself, uh, the management company has been buying shares on a rather larger scale. And so I think actually, whilst this was a short term setback, and I think the price was pretty poor, and does, I think, reasonably give you concern for how else they might manage to sell their other assets if they're recognised in the market as a distressed seller. So there is risk involved. But I nevertheless think that if you're patient, then in time, there's a lot of value here that could be unlocked. And you don't need all of that to be unlocked still to post a decent gain. Yes, well, that is very interesting. I mean, the shares, I think, have fallen to around 34, 35p. They're down about 29% on the month. And the value of this particular transaction, even on the lower scale, is higher than the current market cap. But that's not necessarily saying it's a bargain because they're going to use all the money or most of the money to pay down their debt balance, aren't they? Uh, and there'll still be some funding needed for the other projects I think they have. So it is an interesting one. Encouraging to hear that the great minds of McHattie and others think there might be value here and have the patience to seek it out. Uh, we'll follow this one with great interest. You have to say, it's I think it's trading on the biggest discount in the entire sector, something around 67%. Depends, obviously, which of the many numbers you could use for the NAV, but it's on a massively big discount. And if one can look through that and get the future path right, uh, yeah, I'm sure you can make a lot of money. I hope you do, Andrew. I really hope you do. So we'll come back for that. Let's move on then and talk about our friends at Chrysalis, the Growth Capital Trust, which ran into a lot of controversy uh, not so long ago because of the massive performance fee, which was paid out to the managers shortly before the share price collapsed. But they're pressing on with their business and they put out some more news. What have we learned from that? There's a change in the management arrangements in the offing. And I think when you see that, you start to worry, but actually it's really nothing of uh, great concern. What's happened here is that Richard Watts and Nick Williamson, the two managers, have decided to set up their own firm called G10 Capital, and they will take over the mandate from April the 1st from Jupiter, for whom they currently work. And this is not unusual, actually. When managers make a great deal of money, as uh, Richard and Nick have, they quite often seek autonomy and they want to forge their own path and set up their own management firm. We've seen this a few times in the past. So, for example, with Alexander Darwall and Devon Asset Management. And further back, showing my age here, Brian Ashford Russell and Polar Capital. So this is a normal course of events, I think. It doesn't really mean a great deal. And I wouldn't worry about it as a shareholder. And Chrysalis actually is showing some signs of life. I mean, it's had a tough time in the growth capital sector, but the shares have bounced actually quite well off their worst levels. And the comment I've read is that actually some of their holdings, such as WeFox, Starling Bank and Klarna, could well benefit quite considerably when the capital markets reopen and IPOs become possible. Because this is yet another case, actually, of shares trading on a rough 50% discount to the underlying asset value. 
the board has obviously considered this proposal and decided to recommend that this should be the best way forward. There are some sort of other issues that need to be sorted out, I think. For example, I mean, the fact that Jupiter, which acquired its management contract with Chrysalis, when it took over another firm called Merion, which is where this whole uh, venture started, they still own a significant chunk of shares in Chrysalis. Their other funds do, funds managed by Jupiter do. I think they've got about uh, 13% or so. So the question is, what are they going to do with that? We don't know that yet, do we? whether they're going to hang on to them or get rid of them. The other factor here, I think, is that Richard Watts at least is a manager of, of one of those Jupiter funds which invests in Chrysalis, so he will be giving up managing that fund when he leaves. And then the other point I was going to make was this famous performance fee that uh, made them so much money before the share price crashed. What's called a high watermark on that still remains in place. So they've got to get the value of the shares back up to, I believe I read from one analyst note, 252 pence before they can start to earn a performance fee again. And the current share price is 67p. So they've got to do quite a lot of rowing to get more money. But then, as you said before, they've done very well out of it already. So looking back on the kind of history of Chrysalis to date, are there any lessons we can learn about it, about the state of this particular type of investing, and also about the issue of performance fees and how they're structured and turn out to behave? We have periodically seen these enormous performance fees paid to managers, and it seems as though the investment trust sector doesn't really learn the lesson because there's an outcry each time it happens. And I mentioned Brian Ashford Russell, who set up Polar Capital. He essentially made a lot of money when Henderson Technology Trust made a huge gain in 1999, just before the dot-com bust, of course. And I think it's to do with the structure of performance fees, that if they're based on the performance over a single year, then you can get these huge payouts. And those are normally not a good idea, and they're widely criticised after the event but that's something to watch out for for the future. And I think more broadly, actually, so Chrysalis had a great year and then it subsequently had some tough years. And that's been common across the gross capital sector. And we've seen actually quite a number of other trusts in the, in the same sector, like the Shehalian Fund managed by Bailey Gifford. And there's specialist trusts as well, like Seraphim Space, also fall to these massive discounts. So Chrysalis is not alone. But I think much of that is down to cyclical factors. And my suspicion is that once the cycle turns and IPOs start to happen again and capital starts to be available for future funding, we could see sentiment actually improve quite quickly because ultimately people do like investing in growth companies and some of these companies will end up doing very, very well. Uh, it's always a risk business, though. And so you have to pick carefully, which is sometimes why it's worth paying managers, good proven managers, actually a decent sum of money. Yes, it's all about the scale of it really, isn't it, I think. But you're absolutely right. But the problem being when you're investing in unlisted companies, the problem being that the publicly listed share price of the fund itself is subject to other factors as well. And it can get divorced. And it's only, a, if you like, an on-paper price. It's not the actual asset value of the underlying investments, which can be very, very cyclical, as you say. But Shehalian Fund, you mentioned that, that's up 45% over the last month. Chrysalis up 25%. Augmentum Fintech up 19%. That's another interesting one. They put out some figures or an announcement this week. And similarly, Manchester and London is up 18% and so on. So you're absolutely right. This theme of relatively early stage ventures doing quite well at the moment. But they've got a long way to go back to where they were at their peak, as I just described with Chrysalis. Let's move on then from there and talk about some other trusts which are either having or about to have continuation votes or think they should have one. 
Let's talk about Keystone, ticker KPC. This is an interesting one, which not so long ago was taken over by Bailey Gifford and has this, what now already seems a slightly sort of dated prospectus of delivering high social impact investments. What have they had to say this week, Andrew? This really is an interesting one. I've just written about this in my newsletter. What's happened here is that Sarba Capital, the arbitrageur that is taking stakes across the sector, has recently doubled its stake in Keystone from 5% to 10%. I believe it's the second largest shareholder now, certainly has enough clout to ask questions and uh, get involved. And Keystone has, to some degree, responded here because it was on a discount of around 17 or 18 percent before Saba doubled its stake. Uh, it's narrowed a bit to 14, but that's still actually fairly close to its average 12-month rating, just over 15 percent. And in its most recent statement, Keystone did actually make two interesting changes. One was on the subject of buybacks. It's worth having a good read of this statement because I think it's the most grudging acceptance of the benefits of buybacks you could read. I think you'd be hard-pressed to sound any less enthusiastic about it. So Keystone said the board does not consider that buying back shares during periods when market sentiment is universally negative will necessarily improve the company's rating. But it did go on to say it would consider such activity when it will benefit ongoing shareholders. So it's saying, well, yes, we might do some buybacks. And likewise, on the subject of a continuation vote, it has said it will instigate a continuation vote. But the first one will be in 2027, so some way distant. And it said that's because, actually, Bailey Gifford only took over the mandate in February 2021. So you have to give it a bit of time, especially, I think, to judge it over the course of a cycle rather than just during this very depressed period. So you have to give it some time before you judge it. And I think that's quite reasonable in many respects. You know, I think we all talk about investment trusts as being long term in nature. And I think it's unfair to judge a manager over just one year or two. And I think as well, actually, I have some sympathy with the board's view on buybacks, because quite often there is very little direct impact on the share price. Even a large-scale buyback, such as the one from Pantheon International, hasn't really shifted the discount very much. That's still 38.6% on that one. And the problem for Keystone is that it's quite a small trust anyway. It's only £150 million of net assets, which many would think was too small to begin with. So if you start buying back shares and shrinking that further, you're perhaps not helping the trust. So my feeling is... That in spite of the way they expressed it, you know, I think the board has a couple of reasonable points here. But ultimately, I don't think that's what Saba Capital would have been hoping for. And so we'll have to wait and see what happens. And I think this is going to be worth watching because I really think the gloves could come off here and we might see another fight with Saba demanding much more. Well, yes, indeed. And if we hark back to the European Opportunities Trust situation in which uh, Sabo was instrumental and resulted in more action by the board there, an earlier tender offer and so on. I mean, they originally proposed, I think, 
to do something in 2027 and had to uh, retreat somewhat from that opening shot. So this might be an opening shot, as you say. The board also noted in passing that it says it is sensitive to the tides of market sentiment, which have flowed toward green investments and now appear to be in retreat. So the problem for Keystone, which full name is Keystone Positive Change Trust, they do have this uh, interesting positive social impact mandate, and that's why they won the management contract in the first place. The interesting thing about that is that they're not only suffering from the fact that the kind of things they invest in are not performing very well at the moment, but also, of course, this whole ESG phenomenon seems to be losing some of its momentum, shall we say. So it'll be very interesting to watch this one, as you say. I think it could well turn into a bit of a fight, and we'll, we'll be watching it with interest for what it might tell us about the general issue of share buybacks, which you, I think, very correctly have highlighted, that it's not quite as straightforward as some people uh, make out. We've got a couple more minutes, Andrew. Let's talk about Abergene European Logistics Income, ticker ASLI. Have you been following this one? Here's another trust which I think has launched a strategic review that has a continuation vote coming up next June, and it's gone into strategic review mode, which is short for we've got to think of something to do here. What, what can you tell us about that one? Yes, this was another trust in my personal portfolio, actually, so I have definitely been following it. And uh, I think what's happened here is that the board has effectively moved forward with their activity here. As you say, there was a continuation vote due anyway. So they're addressing the problem sooner rather than later. This is on a wide discount. It's 40% or certainly was before this news. And it's because it's a real estate trust in the logistics space where it's really suffered from yield expansion. And it's probably a bit too small with assets of just over 400 million euro. It's paying an uncovered dividend. So there are a few issues here. And effectively, this strategic review, I think, is the board waving its white flag and saying, if you're interested, please get in touch and come and buy us. Now, it's not the first Aberdeen Trust to do that. And I'm thinking of Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, which tried this strategy and actually didn't work because nobody came in to buy the trust. And it subsequently formulated some rather softer continuation proposals. So we'll have to see what happens here and whether there are any keen buyers of European logistics uh, assets. I'm not sure it's a straightforward sale, this one, because it's a diverse portfolio across five countries in Spain, France, Netherlands, Germany and Poland. And whilst I think these assets are probably actually quite attractive in normal circumstances, in this environment where actually property investors are less keen on these lower yielding assets, it might be a difficult sell. So good luck to the board in uh, finding a buyer, but we'll see what else they come up with to perhaps present some options to shareholders. I've heard some people saying, well, there's an obvious candidate to merge with it in the investment trust space, and that is eBox. Is this no Tritax Eurobox? Do you think that's an option, a, a runner for this particular one? Well, I'm not sure that it is. I, I thought about that too, and I think you're right. That's an obvious combination. But the problem here is that uh, Tritax Eurobox is also on a very wide discount. So in terms of persuading shareholders that that is worth doing to give them some kind of uplift in value, I'm not sure that's going to work. You will get the benefit of size, but I'm not sure that's going to help the discount, which ultimately is really what this review is all about. So I think on that note, Andrew, I think we'll call it a day at that point. I mean, there's so much news to cover. There's other things we could have covered but haven't really discussed. 
Vietnam Holding, ticker VNH, introducing an annual redemption facility, again ahead of its five-yearly continuation vote, and JLEN Environmental Assets. That's another interesting one, which is in danger, I think, of triggering some kind of voting event because its discount has been wider than its target persistently over a period of time. That might also tie into this general green retreat, if you like. Do you have any thoughts on that one in passing? Yes, I mean, the discount on that one is somewhat narrower than many in the sector. It's more like 21%, I think. But nevertheless, you're right, it is in danger of triggering a continuation vote. I don't think they would necessarily be in danger because I think it's a good quality trust and recognised as such. But nevertheless, of course, this is symptomatic of the great problem that virtually every trust across the renewable energy sector has at the present time. And boards are under great pressure to try and do something about these pervasive discounts. And it's not an easy task. Yes. And again, it's quite a substantial trust, isn't it? I think it's got a market cap around 640 million or something like that. So yeah, another one to watch. So this whole process of continuation votes or mergers or asset sales or whatever, it's going to be remain a theme for a while, even though the market is picking up. I don't think we're going to see the end of this by any means. Would you agree about that? Yes. I mean, we might get a little rest over the Christmas period, but I would imagine actually the news flow will keep on coming because, as I mentioned at the outset, this surge of news that we're getting around this time is the result of all of the work that's been going on over past months. And of course, there'll be more of that that's been going on in the background and we'll uh, read what's been going on, I'm sure, for the weeks to come. So uh, we might get a bit of a rest over the Christmas period, but I expect January is going to be another busy month. And of course, it's worth making the point also, we heard this week of a couple of trusts which have passed their continuation votes very easily. Uh, They do come around on a regular basis. And so Oakley Capital, Ticker OCI, the private equity trust, that's one of them. Bluefield Solar Income Fund is another one that actually passed with nearly 99% votes in favour. So uh, it's not necessarily the end of the world, but it does certainly concentrate minds, shall we say. Well, it does. And I think one thing we just ought to finish on as a reminder is that whilst actually we're talking about a lot of trusts that have a number of difficulties and have not necessarily performed very well, These are the ones that are in the news, of course, because they're undergoing reconstructions or seeking mergers or seeing what they can do about their wide discounts. But there's a great number of trusts, actually, that have been perfectly good and still delivering well for shareholders and have no such problem with continuation votes. So the sector as a whole is probably in better health than we're presenting it here, I think. Indeed, it's natural to focus on the things that are doing badly. I can agree with that by pointing out that I counted 76 investment trusts that are up by more than 10% over the last month, and 168 are up by more than 5% over the last month. So things are looking up, as you say, and the ones which are doing very well don't get as many mentions here as perhaps they should do. That's right. When I'm meeting fund managers, I often say that actually I'd like a very boring update, please, because quite often no news is good news and the trusts that are doing well and just quietly keeping the returns up for shareholders over the long term are not generating news for us to talk about, but they're still very welcome in our portfolios. Absolutely. Could not agree with you more. So that was Andrew McHatty, editor of the Investment Trust Newsletter, one of our regular commentators who we go to to catch up on the news across the sector. This seemed like a good week to uh, talk to Charles Luke, who is the manager of the Murray Income Trust, which sits in the UK equity income sector. It's one of the uh, five largest trusts in that sector. And Charles has been the manager since October 2006, which on my calculation means you've been doing this job for 17 years now. 
I hope my mass is right about that. And the Trust has last month marked its 100th anniversary since its launch back in 1923, when it was known as the Caledonian Trust Company. And not to be confused, there's another company of the same name today, as well as another investment trust called Caledonia. But this is now known as Murray Income, has been since 1984. So with all that out of the way, Charles, I'd like to talk to you about what you're doing now. You haven't been managing this trust for 100 years, but you've been doing it for 17. And we're talking about the UK market, of course, and about uh, dividend investing. So why don't you just kick us off by saying what your thoughts are about the UK equity market at the moment? Hi, Jonathan. Hello, everyone. So if you sort of think about UK equities, so as you'll be aware, the, the UK is a pretty unloved market at the moment. It's very much under-owned by international investors. And if you look at UK equity valuations, they look cheap through virtually any lens. So the, the all-share trades on a P of about 10 and a half times, and that's a sort of 35% discount to global equities. And then even if you adjust for sector differences, it's still around a, a 20% discount. And in absolute terms, it's a low number. And relative to history, I think the market's probably only really been cheaper during the global financial crisis. And the portfolio itself, it's a little bit more expensive, so it trades on a P of about 13 times, but you're, you're paying a premium for better quality companies with higher returns on equity, better margins, better earnings growth stability. And to my mind, that's still a small price to pay for that additional quality that, that Murray Income looks for, but in absolute terms, still a very attractive multiple. And then you think of the yield on the UK market at the moment, it's probably around about 4%. And the yield on the portfolio is similar, 4%. And that's a premium to, to global equities, which have a dividend yield of about 2.5%. And I think it's easy to forget that actually the UK is home to companies with significant global growth opportunities, strong competitive advantages, in many ways, world-class standards of, of corporate governance. And that, to my mind, makes it a very attractive market. And then maybe if you think also about the fact that you have this double discount because Murray Income shares are trading below their NAV, so at around about a 7 or 8% discount at the moment. I think that makes it even more attractive, if you like. So the UK market looks cheap and is unloved, as you say, but it's been that way for quite a long time now. So everybody talks about what is the catalyst that might change that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Obviously, we've been a lot of publicity about the fact that pension funds don't invest so much in the UK anymore. They used to invest about 30%. Now they invest about five or less than five even. What do you see by way of a potential catalyst for that changing, which obviously we'd all like to see? So I think perhaps um, a number of issues and you know, only time will tell which ones will, will sort of come to fruition. But I think M&A activity, companies either buying other companies or buying their own shares back, private equity becoming more involved again in the market. And interesting, I think what private equity looks for and what sort of Murray Income is looking for in terms of its own quality income strategy is very similar. So strong balance sheets, capital-like companies, really strong IP and brands and competitive positions and good management teams. And I'd say at the moment, a fair proportion of the Murray Income portfolio does look very vulnerable to M&A activity. So it could be M&A. It could just simply be the sort of macro environment improving, so inflation moving closer to target levels and, and interest rates beginning to fall, and perhaps a more stable political environment would help. Some methods maybe to encourage further investment into UK equities, and maybe sometimes just better market performance can create its own momentum. So that could be a sort of possibility as well. But I think at the moment, maybe you don't really need a catalyst because... 
in many ways, you're sort of paid to wait. So the, the dividend yield on Murray income is 4.5% at the moment. And over the long term, you should see dividend growth of mid-single digits. So I think that yield and the dividend growth allows you the time to be patient, to get those good returns whilst you perhaps wait for um, a little bit more excitement in the UK market itself. Let's talk about what you do at Murray Income is different from what some of your peer group do. I looked at your performance this morning and you're uh, ahead over one year, you're ahead over five years and 10 years, but you're not ahead over three years. And that I think is because 2022 was not a good year for you in relative terms. And indeed in absolute terms, you went down in value. But over the longer term, you're ahead of the all share index over those uh, longer periods as well. So what is it that you do differently from others in the sector? I guess we should start by just talking about where you invest in terms of the market scale, in terms of the FTSE 100 or the the mid cap and the small cap. And is there a difference there? Let's start with that one. At the moment, the gross assets of the portfolio are just under £1.1 billion, comprised of 51 holdings. We have some overseas listed holdings, which are about 19% of the portfolio. um, and There's a maximum there of 20%. And that exposure is really in terms of providing access to industries and companies that you can't find in the UK market. So that might be industries such as elevators or network equipment or uh, luxury goods or cosmetics. So that's helpful in terms of diversifying the portfolio a little bit. Uh, In terms of where we invest and the size split, so roughly 75% large cap, 25% mid cap. The focus is really on trying to find good quality companies with strong competitive advantages, good management teams, robust business models, strong financial characteristics, and holding those for the long term. So a patient buy and hold approach. And then in terms of where we're sort of differentiated from other UK equity income funds, I'd say it's a combination of of a variety of different factors. So we do have this large and and mid-cap exposure. We have a little bit of option writing to help augment the, the income. As I said, we have some overseas holdings. We have a very strong focus on ESG. So we are AA rated by MSCI, which is one of the highest ratings in the peer group. We have a diversified portfolio by income, by capital and by sector. We take this conservative approach. The portfolio tends to perform better when the market goes down. So it has good resilience in market drawdowns. And all of those factors, really, if you sort of put them together, have have led to, as you said, good long-term performance and some good risk-adjusted returns as well. So less volatility than a typical fund in the sector. So if you were to look at that, are you able to say which of those differences have made the best contribution to your returns? In other words, does the non-UK element, for example, produce better returns than the UK listed companies that you own? So you're right in terms of the overseas listed holdings performing well, and this is something that the board looks at. The overseas listed holdings have outperformed the UK holdings, and that's really for the reason that the stock-specific performance of some of these overseas holdings has been strong, particularly the likes of Microsoft and Novo Nordisk, which have performed well over the last four or five years or so. Well, you mentioned ESG now a couple of times. Obviously, uh, there is a sort of general feeling that the passion for ESG in fund investing has sort of waned a little in the last 18 months or so. How do you measure your ESG contribution? What earns you that rating? And, and has that actually contributed positively or negatively, do you think, to the performance of the trust? We take a, a relatively pragmatic approach to ESG. The only sector that we don't own in the portfolio is tobacco. And I don't think you can talk comfortably about ESG when you own tobacco companies, where the research suggests that 
60% of people that use cigarettes as intended will die from smoking-related diseases. So we don't own any tobacco in the portfolio. In terms of other sectors, so oil and gas and mining, if you sort of think broadly about those two sectors, not the greatest exposure necessarily from an environmental perspective, but they do provide diversification and they do provide dividend yield. So what we've done in those sectors is invest in the companies that we think are most aligned with the energy transition. So if you take the oil and gas sector, we own some Total and we own some BP. But more generally, what we're trying to do is find companies that are well run, have a lot of meetings with the non-executive directors of companies and make sure that the company as a whole understands the risks and the opportunities that the company faces strategically and that those risks and opportunities are as, as well managed as they can be. Right. But you don't, for example, have a ban on defence companies or armaments companies. I don't know if you own them. They're not in your top 10, obviously, but uh, that isn't ruled out in theory. You're right. So in theory, they're not ruled out. The first filter that they would need to pass, though, is quality and valuation as well. But at the moment, we don't think the quality and the valuation is such that we'd, we'd want to hold some of those companies in the portfolio. Some people say that one of the issues around ESG is that it tends to be associated with companies that have a particular past growth star characteristic rather than uh, value characteristics, and that therefore has an impact on how well they perform relative to the market. Do you see any evidence in that? Is that a coming to your thinking at all? You know, I think what, what we've always done is looked at ESG, but over the last few years, it clearly became very popular, and now people are, are sort of starting to question those sort of long-term returns that are achievable. But I think with a focus on quality, and there is this sort of difference between quality and growth, quality is focused on companies with strong competitive positions, profitable, they make high returns, they have strong balance sheets. And growth may encompass part of that, but growth can also be unprofitable companies with unproven business models and very significant top line growth where the longevity of the growth and the profitability is unproven. So I think focusing on quality helps to sort of offset some of those concerns that you mentioned that potentially could be issues with, with ESG companies. If we look at your portfolio, and we've heard the approach that you take to picking stocks, and you emphasise the long-term growth potential of some of these names. Give us some examples of the companies you do own and the reasons why you own them. So within the portfolio, there are really sort of four long-term trends in which the portfolio has really quite significant exposure to. So those trends are ageing populations, digital transformation, energy transition and emerging global wealth. So within those, for example, in ageing populations, we have exposure to the likes of Convitec and AstraZeneca and Novo Nordisk. Digital transformation includes companies such as Sage, Experian, Microsoft, Relex, London Stock Exchange. In the energy transition category, companies such as SSE or National Grid, Oxford Instruments, Rotalk, and then finally in emerging global wealth, the likes of Unilever and LVMH, Kone, Inchcape, you know, all of these companies, really good quality companies, exposed to those unstoppable, enduring long-term trends that should drive earnings and dividend growth for many, many years to come. And have you been making any significant changes to portfolio? I, mean, I imagine that with your mid to long-term focus, your turnover is not very high, but what have you been doing in the last year or so and perhaps you could explain why 2022 wasn't such a good year for you and, and what you did as a response to that if anything 
So 2022 was a difficult year in terms of discount rates rising and quality underperforming as future cash flows were worth less. And we didn't change the style. We didn't do anything differently. But that was quite a difficult year in terms of performance. As you sort of mentioned earlier, the the five-year numbers and the 10-year numbers and the one-year numbers are now ahead of the benchmark. Thinking of changes to the portfolio, um, so turnover is low, typically around about 15% a year. Over the last year or so, we've added some new holdings to the portfolio. So companies such as Rotalk, which is a a mid-cap company, a leading manufacturer of actuators. It has its part to play in the energy transition, helping to remove methane emissions, enabling the growth of hydrogen. It's a very high quality company. Um, It makes attractive margins, high return on equity, has a net cash balance sheet, high barriers to entry and, and strong brand. So that's one example of a a uh, new holding. Another example of a new holding is L'Oreal, which is the world leader in cosmetics. Again, very strong quality attributes, strong brands, high gross margins, very attractive growth potential in emerging markets. So there's sort of a couple of examples of new companies. A couple of, of holdings we've sold a little more recently over the last couple of months or so. So uh, we had small holdings in Drax and Croda. And uh, we thought the quality characteristics of those companies had deteriorated. So Drax, uncertainty around funding post the end of its subsidies in April 2027. And there's this ongoing debate about the sustainability of biomass and the challenges of building the infrastructure that's required for its BECS programme. And then Croda had a profit warning. It was losing market share and operating leverage was higher than we'd expected, suggested maybe perhaps the, the quality of the company wasn't as good as we'd hoped and the valuation was still a little bit full. So Drax and Croda are examples of smaller holdings that have relatively recently been sold from the portfolio. So let's talk about dividends and income. You sit in the UK equity income sector and your objective is to achieve a high and growing income combined with capital growth through investment in a UK equity portfolio, plus the 20% that is outside the UK listing market. And you mentioned your dividend yield. And you have been increasing that for 50 years consecutively, which makes you one of the AIC's dividend heroes. So what is your approach to actually that? Do you start with a baseline target and then you try to uh, add to that? Or do you have some other kind of approach? You don't just let the dividend yield fall out of the uh, portfolio naturally. So the focus, and I think, you know, it's actually interesting, if you look back on the 50 consecutive years of of dividend growth, and think about the reasons behind that. So the structure of investment trusts and the ability to maintain revenue reserves help to smooth the income. So that's helpful. And also, you know, if you go back over 50 years, the, the strength of overseas currencies have been helpful for a dividend paid in sterling. But I think the the overarching reason why the trust has been able to maintain its track record has been this focus on on high quality companies. And if you're able to grow your earnings over the long term, then you can grow your dividends. And the quality of the company helps you to sort of navigate more difficult times, good times and the bad times, and hopefully you can emerge in a stronger competitive position. So the focus for Murray Income isn't on companies simply with high dividend yields. It's on companies with sustainable, healthy dividend yields, but those companies that can grow their earnings over the long term, and therefore they'll be able to grow their dividends. And that should translate to dividend growth for Murray Income, and as it does so, capital growth over time. And what is the outlook for uh, dividends in the UK market, or I should say for the companies that you actually own? Perhaps that's a better question to ask rather than the outlook for the UK market. As you say, you mentioned the weakness of sterling can help in some years, but 
What's your assessment of the dividend growth potential in your portfolio at the moment? Yeah, so I think if you look in general, post-COVID, many companies rebase their dividends and payout ratios and now at a sort of more modest level. So that provides a, a strong base for dividend growth. If you look at the portfolio, and I put together a five-year dividend growth projection, you see companies, and I think this is probably relatively conservative as well, because it doesn't include the likes of special dividends. You see mid-single-digit dividend growth over the medium to long term. And as I said, you know that's starting off with a 4.5% dividend yield as well. So I think the outlook for dividend growth in the portfolio is very good. And I, I feel very confident that the companies in the portfolio will be able to deliver those earnings aspirations that, that then flow through to those dividend aspirations as well. If we look at the rate of inflation, we don't know what it's going to be, but would you expect or would you hope that the dividends will continue to grow at least in line with the rate of inflation, preferably obviously more than? So I think if you see inflation come back to target levels, then the dividend growth potential of the portfolio is certainly greater than 2 2.5%. So you will see real increases in terms of the dividend. I think another factor to just bear in mind is that given the attractiveness of companies and valuations at the moment, you do see a trend more towards share buybacks. So uh, I did some analysis on the portfolio recently, and it suggested that the dividend yield was 4%. But if you were to add in the buybacks that companies are making, then the sort of distribution yield would be closer to 5%. So it depends a little bit about how companies decide on the best way to return capital. But if, if inflation comes back to 2%, then I definitely expect dividend growth in the portfolio to be above that sort of level. Right, OK. I mean, I think the if you look at the consumer price index, for example, it's grown over the last five years by an annualised rate of about 4.5%. Obviously, you had that big spike. And that's been a challenge to real dividend growth. But we hope for better times ahead. Can I talk to you about the discount? You mentioned the discount on the trust. I think it's fair to say that your trust is trading on a wider discount than some of your peers. I think the average in the sector is around 4% and your discount is, I think, close to 8% or perhaps just under. So it's a matter for the board, obviously, but why do you think that is? You're right. So the discount is monitored very, very closely by the board. And it is a little bit of a quandary why the discount is wider than some of the peers, particularly if you look at performance of the trust over the time, the potential future performance, the holdings. So the company's been buying back shares and the actual policy itself isn't disclosed publicly, but we've been very active over the last 18 months, bought back around 7% of the shares which are held in Treasury um, because we'd like to reissue them one day. And you can see the levels at which shares have been bought back if you look at the announcements. So we're hopeful that if we continue to do what we say on the tin and performance is good and dividend growth is strong, then that discount will close. But, you know, to my mind at the moment, that's an opportunity. And, and I actually recently bought some more shares because um, it seemed like an attractive investment at the moment with that sort of 7 or 8% discount. I mean, there is a difference in the sector also in the degree of gearing that's employed by the trust. Perhaps you could remind us what your kind of approach to gearing is, whether it's sort of semi-permanent, permanent or variable, and where it is at the moment. Do you think that's a factor in, uh, in the discount as well? So we think about employing gearing strategically, so a means over the long term to gently amplify returns. I don't have any skills in predicting market moves in the short term, so not tactically trying to time the market. Gearing is currently around 9%. That's not very different to other trusts in the sector. So I don't think the gearing itself is a reason for the discount. And actually, you know, the absolute level of debt hasn't changed since the merger with 
perpetual income and growth three years ago. So we have 100 million pounds of, of longer term loans. Um, so two loan notes, 40 million pounds worth due in 2027 and 60 million pounds due in 2029. And we also have a bank revolver of which six million pounds has been drawn down. And the, the blended interest rate on all of that is, is about 3.6%. Right, which is reasonably attractive, of course. You mentioned, obviously, you absorbed perpetual income and growth back in 2020. That was three years ago. There's a lot of consolidation going on in the sector. Do you think there's other opportunities for your trust in the sector if there is a more of a shakeout across the universe? I think, you know, if you look back on the merger with perpetual income growth, it was very successful and it benefited shareholders. I think the board are always alive to potential M&A opportunities. You know, they're aware of the consolidation that's going on in the market. And if something suitable was to present itself, I'm sure that they would look at that very closely. Right. And of course, I think it's fair to say that Aberdeen, which is the financial company you work for, and which has the contract to manage Murray Income, has been doing a lot of consolidation. Their trusts are at the sort of forefront of the consolidation. Has that been a factor in how you think about this or how the board thinks about this? I'd like to think that the Murray Income Petrol Income Growth Transaction was almost sort of like a trailblazer for what you've seen over the last two or three years in terms of industry consolidation. But what's going on with other investment trusts that Aberdeen manages isn't really a consideration. You know, Murray Income thinks about things and the wider market on its own rather than necessarily becoming involved with the sort of larger Aberdeen picture. Finally, then, uh, Charles, you made a couple of references to the fact that you think the opportunities for the trust are attractive at the moment. You've got this discount on a market, which is a discount to the world market and so on. How would you sum up if I was to say to you, well, why would I want to invest in Murray Income Trust? What would I be looking at? Perhaps the best way of answering that question is to just quickly summarise Murray Income's investment proposition. So that's really what I like to call the 3D. So we want to be dependable, we want to be diversified, and we want to be differentiated. So Dependable with a focus on on high quality companies with good long term capital growth prospects, maintaining a patient buy and hold investment approach. Diversified is thoughtful diversification by sector, by income, by capital, having a little bit of exposure to overseas listed companies, having some healthy exposure to mid cap companies, having a little bit of option writing to help modestly increase the income, and then being differentiated. So in terms of other companies in the sector, the focus on really good quality companies, the diversification, the overseas listed companies, the mid-cap exposure, a very strong ESG focus, not having any tobacco holdings. And I think when you sort of amalgamate all of those together, you end up with a portfolio with an attractive dividend yield, good capital resilience in challenging markets, but also scope to capture structural growth opportunities and a portfolio that's delivered some attractive risk-adjusted returns over the long term. So I think that, in, in a nutshell, is Murray Income's investment proposition. And the greatest risk you see out there? I mean, there's always risks. Is it just that the UK market remains unloved and therefore the kind of absolute returns that you lose could be quite modest if that remains the case? Or are there other things that keep you awake at night? I think, as Adam Smith described it, anxious vigilance. So I, I sort of worry about lots of things. But I suspect that it's the unknown unknowns, the things that you can't predict that are likely to trip us up. But hopefully those things don't occur. But I think, you know, Murray Income is set fair in terms of its positioning at the moment and its ability to generate good long term returns for shareholders. So that was Charles Luke, the manager of the Murray Income Investment Trust. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. 
You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.